this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. If you're one of the people that love this show, make sure you go over to holyfullproductions.com and check out our home. You can read articles. You can see my personal journals straight out of the typewriter. You can see the weekly link roundup of all the interesting things I run across. You can see drawings. You can see books recommended for the book club. Or if you're like me and you like things simple, you can just have it sent right to your inbox by signing up for the newsletter, which goes out almost every day. And of course, you can help support this show through either monthly subscriptions or generous one-time donations. All at hoyfulproductions.com. In preparing for this, I was trying to remember how it is that we stumbled across each other. I don't recall. It happened on YouTube, but I don't remember where. I, I'm pretty sure I've, I've tracked it back to the video that you did on notebooks. and right, Oh, the journaling video, yeah. On the right-hand side, putting on the right-hand side. I'll put a link for that in the show notes so that people can check that out because I've been doing that since, uh, since I ran across that video. And I, oh, really? I mean, How's it going for you? I love it. I really do. It's, it's brilliant. So for people listening who haven't actually seen this video yet, you want to just give like, a, like one or two sentence idea of what I'm talking about? Yeah. So I, I do this two-stage journaling system. I still do it to this day. And I just keep a, I keep a small beat-up pocket notebook in my pocket. And if I have ideas that really grab me, and I want to make sure I don't forget, or if I want to take notes when I'm listening to a podcast or an audiobook or reading a book, I put it all down into this initial notebook. And then I have sort of a nighttime ritual before bed where I copy these into a larger, more permanent journal. So it's kind of like having two stages of filtering on the ideas and really going back over them kind of like you would in college, you know, when you're cramming for the test and you're going over all your notes and you're copying them over into another book to really make sure the ideas gel. I'm not sure. Did you do more than one video on, on journaling? Um, I had one other that was kind of journaling adjacent. Okay. I, I, I'm not sure if we're, if we're even talking about the same one right now. I'm not sure I saw that one. Um, <laughs> the one I'm talking about was the one where you discussed writing only on the right-hand side of the page and then yeah. flipping the journal over. Is that the same one? Yeah. Yeah. That's 
part of the more detailed version of the method. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Yeah. I probably, uh, the rest of it <laughs> included into my knowledge because kind of, uh, there was a period of time where I was doing something similar to what you just described, except mm-hmm. I was, I was obsessed with this idea of taking the physical notes and putting them digitally. And then after about a year of doing that, I realized I hated doing that. Yeah. There are a lot of things that I've just fallen into doing digitally and, um, working as an art director for a while, I was very much in that digital world and there were tools for everything and it was all efficient and collaborative and it was great, but I feel like I'm getting to this place now where I'm starting to realize what I lost getting away from the way I used to do certain things. There's a certain, I don't, I don't even know how to describe it. Once you get kind of back out of it, you know the difference, you can feel the difference, but it's not always... I find it's difficult to put into words in a way that people who are in the midst of the digital enmeshment, mm-hmm. and to put it into words that actually sink in for them to understand. Because I've tried to explain it to people and they just don't get it. And I'm, It's like this man, I use the words manufactured sense of urgency all the time. Yes, I, I could feel for that. And it's, it's difficult. I mean, how would you explain it, the, the difference? Um, I think it's it's really experiential for me. It was one of those things when I was when I was the deepest into it, I loved it and I didn't see any other way. And then like with many things, just taking a break and having that perspective of a little time away from something. So I really pulled back on social media and I really got back into um more physical forms of, you know, note taking and just ritual and habit that I want to try to, you know, just make my life better and be happier and all of that kind of thing. Um, and it's just, it's been super healthy and I've just felt more connected to what I'm doing and less um, stressed out about what anybody else thinks or whether or not things are landing the way that I want them to land when I put them out into the world. It's, it's actually interesting that we're having this conversation about, uh, the benefits of the, I guess, for a better, um, more recognizable description to people, the analog world. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, you and I met through a digital format. So it's, it's kind of a nice yeah. irony right there. Yeah, and I'm, I'm not at all anti-digital. I just realized that it, it was filling up not only all of my time, but it was filling up my mind. The, the journaling thing really helped me sort things out and take charge of what I was doing with my time. Because it just getting things down reduces your stress about them. It reduces any thinking about them that you're going to do. And you know you can come back to them. You feel, you know, kind of a, a comfort in that. And I don't understand why it's felt different for me with digital. Like if I had all of these notes in Evernote, I would have a lot more advanced features. But I guess when I look back at myself and I see my pattern when I'm put into a system like that, is to go in and tweak the system and to make sure that all the information's like formatted correctly and that it looks nice. And then I'm tagging everything. And then I realize, oh, the way that I was doing my keywords doesn't make sense for me today. So then I feel like I have this mountain of backlog to go. It, it's insane what I put myself through when I'm given tools like that. When you and I were messaging back and forth for this episode, I think it was through email, you said there's a lot of common ground and there's a huge, huge one right there. I am exactly <laughs> the same way. I have changed note-taking apps and my former co-host Lamb, if he's listening, can attest to this. I've changed note-taking apps and task apps and 
methods and all of those things probably, I don't know, 20, 30 times in the last two years. <laughs> because I always, I'm always looking for a way better. And I think maybe for me, and maybe for you from what you're saying as well, one of the problems with doing everything digitally is there's this promise that digital can provide something perfect, some sort of perfect system. So we're mm. always trying to attain this perfection. Whereas with paper, once it's down, you just have to accept that it's there. Yeah, I would agree. I think that that, that that promise of perfection makes you spend way too much time, at least if you're like me, perfecting the thing rather than using the thing for the thing you wanted to do in the first place. I was looking at something the other day, probably some random article on Medium, and it said something along the lines that uh, currently people spend 60% of their time managing their time management rather than working. Yeah. yeah. That's frightening. I had a, just a funny little anecdote. I had this e-commerce design position years ago, and my uh, direct report was kind of upset with the slow time tracking kludge that we had to work with. And so they had us start tracking our time tracking time, and it pushed 20% of our entire day. Wow just getting into and out of that mode and you know you can't be on any calls when you're doing that or doing any of your design work it was it was really enlightening yeah, there's um i've been playing around with the ios 12 beta for the iphone and there's this screen time thing in there that will tell you how much time you're spending in mm. apps at least as far as they are on the screen and it's been maybe enlightening is not the right word it's been terrifying <laughs> <laughs> when you're confronted with the reality of where your time is actually going, you know, you look and you go, how did I spend two hours today in the messaging app? Yeah. Especially an app like that. There's an app you dip in and out of throughout the day. You don't realize how much time you're actually investing into that app. No, that's, that's part of it's, it's partially scary, but it also, it kind of lets you take control. Right. And it's also, it's important to evaluate and, you know, obviously, on, if I look and I see that I've spent uh, two hours in the Facebook app, most people would think that's awful. But I have two Facebook groups that are related to this show and I spend time in those Facebook groups. So sometimes I'm doing things in, quote unquote, naughty apps, <laughs> doing good things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing, though, is, you know, what do you what do you value with your time? If you spent two hours of valuable time in any given app, well, that's fine. You know, I probably spent hours in eBay this week just to save money. And that was a valuable use of my time. Right. Or people who... Polo. Yeah. Uh, I can't find... I'm really trying to find the year that it took a shit. That MySpace took a shit. Um, yeah, I should probably... I'm guessing it's 2008 because I just feel... That sounds about that right. crossover. Mm-hmm. Let's see. Oh, here we go. Okay. On November 1st, 2007, MySpace and Bebo joined okay does saying all of a sudden all these other social medias opened then you had orcut and facebook yeah i think you're right it looks like late 2007 2008 good call wow there you go you could be, <laughs> you could be a tech reporter <laughs> i love it sign me up <laughs> do i get paid <laughs> well nobody gets paid to do writing anymore <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's, it's the shit. I was just explaining that to somebody today. They're like, I was like, I'm gonna. There's this publication that maybe I was gonna write for, and then I was 
changed my mind like a week later. And the person was like, why did you change your mind? I'm like, because the pay is not that good. They're like, what's the pay? And then I explained it. And they're like, that's, you know, I was like, it's $300 an article. Well, that's good. It's like, no, not really. Because you're putting like... No, you can't live here off that. (laughs) And you're putting like 10, 12 hours into an article. Like that's not very much money an hour when it comes to... Nobody pays, you know. I don't like for modeling, do you, you have trouble with like getting the, you know, like Um, having to argue about rates with people and stuff because everybody wants shit for cheap now? Oh, yeah. And and it's like you go back and forth too because sometimes it's like the designer's paying the photographer. So the photographer um, finds the model. And Mm. then it's like, okay, well, let's say the model doesn't know the designer. They don't know that they're paying the photographer. The photographer normally pays the model. And so sometimes it's like, hey, I know you're getting paid. (laughs) Like... You know, help me out. You know, you don't got a picture without the model. So it's it's really when you start to become more in demand that you can... You pay your dues. So when I started out, it, they call it trade for photo. And... Mm-hmm. Um, oh, is that what TFP? I saw that somewhere. Right. Oh, maybe it was on your... TFP. Maybe it's on yours. No TFP. It is on mine, yeah. So okay. I, I put no That's more because I don't want to deal with that anymore. I've paid my dues. I've done my share. And so basically, you are supposed to, in trade, get the photo. But what's, what the problem is, when you start out and they're taking pictures of you, you used to get a print, high resolution. So now they're sending it to you through email and I'm going back into maybe a few years back and I'm trying to bring up the photo. I'm like, this isn't even high resolution. I can't print this. Oh, fuck. And so, yeah. And so when you upload it onto Facebook, it totally distorts it. So if you were to try to take one of my photos, save it, print it, it's not going to look right. The only way it can look right is if you go directly to the photographer and say, hey, can I get a copy of the high resolution of Julie Matthews? Oh, yeah. Let me bring it up. Let me send it to you. And then you could print it. So, um, so I, you know, if you are starting out as a model and it's trade for photo, make sure to get high resolution, whether they send it through a drop, Dropbox, um, some type of link, because I didn't really do that. And a lot of my stuff was just, you know, it was saved on the computer, but the resolution is not quality. And so, you know, I, it wasn't until maybe after I started modeling for designers, um, my first designer I modeled for was West Coast Leather. And, you know, he he takes care of, you know, who models for him and photographers. And um, then I went over to, you know, that opened up the door to model for a lot more other photographers and designers and things like that. So, but yeah, I mean, it's not something where I can make, you know, real money out of it. And, uh, you know, everyone kind of has a running joke, like, well, none of us are in it for the money. (laughs) It's like the music business until you get famous, right? Yeah, exactly. You really pay your dues. You know, it's like in music, you play all the dive bars and, you know, work your way up and, 
but with modeling, it's a little bit different. You know, you you do a lot of fashion shows. A lot of fashion shows are not paid, and um, that kind of gets you out there. It's networking, and and I love it. I mean, I started out modeling not to get paid. I really started out because it was a passion of mine. I just wanted an outlet, something that you know I can create with someone. Because when you speak with a photographer, it's like, hey, what kind of photo shoot do you want to do? And uh, you kind of go back and forth and come up with ideas. It's like writing a song. And then you basically have the foundation. All right, let's create. And you get in the room and you just you just create. You just have fun. I mean, you were mentioning how you had a bunch of books. And I just started thinking photo shoot. Oh, I yeah. started imagining myself there in, in walls of books, reading a book. You know, wearing a designer's uh, outfit. I mean, that's where my mind goes. Piecing piecing it together. It's, a, it's like um, wardrobe for, you know, like films and stuff like that too, right? You know, it's, it's a more, more part of your brain. Yeah. Putting together the scenes. You know what I'm curious about is um, maybe it's just because uh, it's never been my experience to to be around for this. But like, is it weird, at least when you're starting out, you know, like there's a lot of shots that you've done that you're in either a bathing suit or in underwear. Is that weird at first? Is that uncomfortable at first? Or were you just like naturally not, uh, did you like naturally not think about it? Well, yeah. So when I first started, it was like no semi nude, no nude, nude, nothing of it. And so, you know, it's like bikini was as far as I would go. And what helped me modeling is I got really comfortable with my body Mm -hmm. and I kind of looked at it as a breakthrough that now I could be, you know, in front of the camera and be confident and feel sexy and feel, um, like, okay, you know, I, I like pictures like this and it was a gradual type of, I don't know, just evolving into what I think is art. Because so many, you know, famous painters have painted, you know, figure modeling and things like that. And and I started getting into that. I started getting into figure modeling and portrait modeling. And I have a lot of respect for it. And so I look at photography the same way, just as someone painting me. I think it's just as beautiful to capture. Um, and I started modeling for a... Uh, Darkest Fox mm-hmm. and high fashion lingerie. And I love, love their line. And once I started modeling for them, it just really took off. And I just, I was completely comfortable with my body at that point. But it can be a little awkward because when you start out and you are not comfortable with nudity, mm-hmm. I mean, you'll get into a room. And a photographer will be like, oh, okay, um, now why don't you take your shirt off? And you're like, why? Oh, yeah, that would be weird. Why would I take my shirt off? I'm modeling. I'm supposed to be modeling clothes. Why am I modeling my birthday suit? <laughs> See, it has to be discussed. I mean, a lot of times, if you're going into it, like, hey, like I was kind of mentioning before, when you're working with a photographer, you think, okay, hey, I would like to work with you. Okay, awesome. What do you want to do? You start sharing, kind of like from Pinterest, you start sharing ideas. 
oh, what if we did something like this? And, um, you know, maybe it's like a, a sheet drape, you know, silk like over the body and it's out in the woods and it's all artistic and high fashion or whatnot. And, and that's great and that's fine um, if you're going into it like that. But if I show up to a photo shoot and I'm supposed to be wearing jeans and a t-shirt or shorts or modeling, I don't know, makeup and hair, and then they say, okay, now take your shirt off. I I mean, that's not what I signed up for. And so you can right. see that becomes pretty awkward. Yeah, that's and, catchy. I mean, do you take people with yeah, you? Yeah. And I've had to say no. I mean, it's just like, well, no, I'm not comfortable doing that or that's not what I signed up for. Yeah, I, and, uh, I can imagine how yeah. many... There's got to be a, at least a small percentage of people out there just like waiting to manipulate people in situations. Well, yeah. So when I first started modeling, so this is how I got into it. Um, I, my, my girlfriend of mine, um, we've gone to school forever and together and been through so much together. And so she's my best friend and she hits me up and she's like, Hey, um, I'm looking for a designer. Um, I have an idea for, and I need to find someone that can create it. And so we drive up to San Francisco and it's rainy and it's, it's just miserable outside. And we get there and we see a sign-in sheet. So we start signing in and this gentleman comes up to us, approaches us and says, Hey, are you here for the model casting? And we're like looking at each other, like, what is he talking about? And we're like, no, we're here for like the uh, tech fashion networking event. And this gentleman's like, no, that's not until next Wednesday. And we're thinking, oh my God, we drove all the way here through the rain. Are you kidding me? And, you know, for those who are listening, uh, you know, it's an hour away where we're driving. So he's like, well, why don't you come in and, you know, why don't you walk for us and try out and just have fun? So I was like, all right, hell yeah, let's do it. So when I was auditioning and walking back he had me do like the whole catwalk thing and i was walking back and he goes okay all right all right um you can do uh editorial you can do uh, fashion you could do makeup hair you can model you know foot modeling hand modeling but you'll never do runway you're not tall enough and i was like okay that's fine and he said i'll set you up with two of my photographers and they'll take you out because you need to start building your portfolio and i thought Okay. And to kind of speed up on that story, it's funny when someone says, Oh, you'll never do like what he said, you'll never do runway. I ended up at New York Fashion Week 2018. <laughs> so it's like, never listen. Like, I mean, I was just happy that he was setting me up with photographers, but it's just so funny how someone can say that one thing. And I mean, what? What does anyone really know what anyone's capable of doing? Right. Everybody like so, thinks that the little experience that they have, which even people who have a lot is still a little, that that's like mm-hmm. enough to know everything, you know, like, oh no, right. I can't do that. How do I know? I've been a photographer for 15 years. So what? Right. The fuck's that mean? That's, that's your experience. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, I kind of felt like three years ago, everything was still kind of changing because, you know, we're seeing like plus size models and things like that, which I don't even agree with the word plus size. I don't, I personally don't even like that. 
But um, it it's rewarding to see that, you know, the standards are changing and it's being more acceptable. Right. And even height is becoming to be more acceptable. Now in fashion shows, it's like, oh, are you 5'4"? Okay, well, wear your tallest heels. Oh, are you 5'7"? Five nine. Okay, wear your short heels. Now we all are the same. That's so so strange to me too, because like height, you take okay. So fashion essentially is showing you know you're showing clothing, but it's also you're showing the woman who's wearing it or the man, and it's you know the 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 two things working together, making the clothes fit on that person, and then that makes people go, oh yeah, this line or this item is amazing it but at its mm-hmm. core it's based you know it's playing off of our idea of attraction right you know we're putting right. putting someone up that make and making them look good because we want to trigger the attraction part of the person's brain not because we're trying to turn them on but because we want to trigger that so that they want to buy or they want to you know yeah. write about it but when you think about like in when it comes to attraction like height is not really that big of a deal you know obviously like if you're very, if you're like two feet tall, okay. Some people might not be attracted to somebody that. Yeah. <laughs> or if you're like an eight foot tall woman, yeah, okay. But that's like the extremes. But you know, like the the minimal like level that they would do modeling height before didn't make sense in the public. You know, like right. You know, the, we we were far more accepting of that in society than like that they were. So that seemed like a weird thing that they put on that. Yeah, because fashion models have a very particular height and measurement standards and typically age too. I think it's like 16 to 21. Mm-hmm. Most agencies want the age of a 16, well, 13 to 16. And uh, it was like models like uh, from Victoria's Secret, like Adriana Lima. I mean, she was uh, discovered when she was 13 in Brazil. And uh, and like, I think it's um, Alessandra... Uh, Ambrosio, I think I might have butchered her last name. Um, she's one of the highest paid models, and she's a wonderful model. And so, I I kind of look at um, that experience that I had, where it was kind of eye opening to that world and what I was about to enter into. And when I got set up with the photographers, the second photographer had sat me down. And he said, listen, you haven't done this before. You're not in this industry. I just want to kind of coach you and let you know that there's going to be times where, you know, someone's going to say, oh, yeah, I have a camera. I'm a photographer. And they're just trying to get you naked. Right. And you need to be safe yeah, and make sure that, you know, everything is discussed and put into writing. Because you don't want to walk into that room and be put into an uncomfortable situation. And I think a lot of that shit happened in the 70s and the 80s. There's a lot of... Oh, dude, yeah. And some of them being even famous photographers taking advantage of women. Because... Of course. They could. And there wasn't a damn thing anybody was going to do about it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There's also... There's a, there's a documentary. I can't remember what it's called right now. It is about... There's this complex... Um, apartment complex in Los Angeles, and it's like famous as the place that uh, where kids that are trying out for TV shows. So they have pilot season. So all these kids show up for pilot season 
to try out for all these TV shows and movies. And almost all of mm-hmm. them end up staying in this apartment complex. It's famous for it. I can't remember what it's called. I think the documentary is called like the Hollywood complex or something like that. Mm. But in the documentary, you see that they have these people like just scamming these families where they'll come in and they, oh, yeah. they'll go, okay, I'm, I'm going to, I want to be your agent. I want to represent you. You've got to look, you've got something special. You're like a young Brooke Shields. And then they, you know, they get them mm. all excited. Oh, somebody's noticing me. Oh, awesome. And it's an agent. I need an agent. And they go, okay, what you're going to need is you're going to need a new headshot. You're going to need classes. You're going to need this. So they name out like all these five, six things that they need. And they go, you know, we work with the people downstairs. Go see the people downstairs and they can hook you up with that. And what it turns out is these people upstairs that are the agents, one of them is married to the person who owns the business downstairs. <laughs> so they're telling them all this stuff they need so that they go downstairs and then they spend it and then they never get these kids any gigs. And I imagine yeah. in the modeling industry, shit like that happens a lot too. Like, how do you vet the legitimacy of somebody? You know, like, especially if they're connecting up to you via Instagram. Well, that's why I, I freelance. And um, a lot of times, I mean, I'll, I work on a referral basis only. And that's how I basically have done it since that second photographer sat me down. And it was at that moment that a lot of models... So, so it's a small pool. And in, within this pool, I mean, there's a set photographers and models. So we all talk to each other. And so we'll reach out to each other. Hey, have you worked with this photographer before? What was your experience? Mm-hmm. And not to say that everyone's going to have the same experience. But right. you know, we do our research. But you can at least gauge temperature. Have right. to. You know, like one negative, three positives. Okay, I get the gist. Mm, right, right. And it's all in the work too. Before, like I I mean, I wasn't really picky. I, I loved everyone I worked with and I felt like everyone had their own style. But there was, you know, other models who, you know, they had certain demands where, okay, well, if you don't use Photoshop, then I don't work with you. Oh, and wow. I look at photography as an art. So if you are more or less about just the lighting, then I need to know that. Um, and sometimes going into it, I'll say, well, you know, um, I, I love that you use natural light. You know, is there, is there any way that we can edit? Would you be comfortable with this? And, and some agree and some don't. But you just have to discuss all that before going in. And I always ask, do you use Photoshop? You know, and uh, because you're edited. And there's actually something going on because when I visit New York, they were, um, I believe, trying to pass a law where you could not um, over edit a photo Hmm. because it was getting to the point where they were extending legs and making you look taller than you were and making your eyes bigger and your cheekbones and your lips. Oh, yeah. There was a video on YouTube about somebody doing that. I'm going to send you two photos right. right now. I want you to look at these. Okay. Uh, you can. I think you can look while you're still on the phone, right? This is from right, right. Yeah. This, this is from Maxim, and I literally I I brought these up to share with Lamb, but you brought this up. I'm like, oh, it's such a good time. It's a great photo <laughs> of this girl, and then I looked at it closely, and I'm like, I saw the Photoshop mistake, 
And I don't, you, you, if you look at it right there, you can't see it at all, right? It looks like just a normal photo. Right. Okay, now I'm going to zoom in. It's going to be of her butt, so don't think I'm being rude. I just want you to look at okay. what they did to her butt with Photoshop. They drew her okay. ass crack in. Oh, my God. Isn't that weird? Our, you can't do the things you can do in Rome as easily because it prevents me, or at least it, it pushes back. That resistance pushes back on me becoming a link hoarder. And when I when I when I started moving a couple notes over, I noticed, I noticed the difference there. That I would put down some notes from um, Hitch Twenty Two, the memoir by Christopher Hitchens, and then my natural tendency from using Rome for so long was to be immediately begin to create a page for Christopher Hitchens. But then I realized I'm like, I don't have anything additional to say about him at this moment. The only thing that is notable about him in my notes at this moment is that he wrote this book. So I could just type his name and not create a page, not create a link, and just let it wait. So that eventually when I had enough references to him that I felt I had something to say, that I had a page to create, I could do that. And then I would never feel that overwhelm again. And it makes sense when you think about the shelves. Think about how they get cluttered. You know, well, let me just, I don't know where this goes. And let me just put it here. Um, I grew up with a, with a family who's pretty much uh, one step below hoarders. My grandfather used to save everything. These nails, one could be slightly bent. Well, you never know. You might need it one day. And it's better to have it. No, it's not. <laughs> you could just, it's a nail. When you need a nail, you could just go to the store and buy one for like a penny. <laughs> nails are not expensive. You don't need to save them. We we don't need to hoard. We don't need to hoard things. We don't need to hoard even in the digital world. Because sure, maybe it doesn't cost any more to have more notes. Than it has than it costs to have less notes. But that doesn't mean that you need those notes because there is an overwhelm and there is an unresolved gestalt in all of that, in collecting things you don't need, because there is a little voice in the back of your head going, All this stuff, what are we gonna do with it? This little this little voice in the back of your head is always asking you, is this a good time to use this? And if you never use it, then that voice just has been screaming for no reason. When we go to bookstores, we don't buy every book we see. We buy the books that we think we're going to read, that we want to read. We don't buy all of them. So why should I be taking every note that I've written in this notebook and moving it over to the place where I try to develop thoughts into writing or into episodes? Why shouldn't I just be moving over the ones that I think I have more to say about? In the Zettelkasten methodology, there's an episode, previous episode, I don't remember what the number is right now. I'll put the link here where Lamb and I talk about Lamb's, Lamb's on the show. This is when we were doing a show together. We talk about Zettelkasten. I break down what the whole idea of it is. But in Zettelkasten, there are essentially three types of notes. Fleeting, literature, and permanent. 
the fleeting notes, the fleeting notes are my dog food. You know, this is, these are things you need and then you can throw away. This is not something you're going to archive. You know, it's just something you need for a period of time and then it's useless after that period of time is gone. It's fleeting. Its value is temporary. Literature notes are more what I'm talking about, what's going on in the notebooks. This is when you're reading, you write down the stuff that's interesting. And instead of calling them literature notes, because I feel like that's confusing, I actually call them just interesting notes. It's the stuff that I find interesting. It's the thoughts that I have that are interesting at the time in the moment. When you go back later, not all of them are valuable. And then you create from the what's left, you create the permanent notes. And I actually, just to make it simple, I call these useful notes. You know, these these are the notes that are useful. Useful in the sense that I'm going to use them. They are full of use. Not useful as in you, you can make an argument in the colloquial term of what useful means, that anything is useful. A fleeting note is useful until it's used, right? But useful in the term that I am going to use them. So fleeting notes, you know, whatever those happen, wherever they happen, whether it's the palm of your hand or in your phone, in a to-do app, literature notes in the notebook, permanent notes, also known as useful notes, in Obsidian. Ah, a system. Ah, relief. Ah, a support structure to get me through not only the rest of the year, but in particular this time of year when things are difficult. You know, I, and then another benefit of this actually that's really cool that I just realized before recording this episode is I don't I don't read like most people do. I've probably mentioned this before. I don't just pick up. Actually, I did in a in one of the episodes that was originally a semi-literate episode. It was the episode after, I think, the ice episode where I talked about hyperbole and a half. And I talked about how I was going to change that show because I wasn't reading books in a whole. I just wanted to bring in parts of books because that's how I read. I don't just pick up a book and go, I'm, I'm into this book and this is my book until I'm done with it. That's not me. I have about 12 books on my coffee table right now that I'm reading. And I just pick up one and maybe I read 5, 20, 40 pages, whatever I feel like at the moment. The next time I sit down and feel like reading, I probably pick up a different one. I'm not, I'm, I'm drifting, I'm looking for ideas. I'm just feeding my interests. So by doing everything in the notebooks, I can do that more easily, right? It doesn't matter. Just throw it in there. They'll all make sense later. You can, If you want to combine all of the thoughts about the ideas about that one book, well, when you put it into your system, you can do it then. But for right now, just write down what you're thinking about now. Write down just what you find interesting right now. Follow your interests. Jump books indiscriminately. Don't worry about dating things because the dates never mattered anyways. Because when you when you find a snag, like a big snag, like my thoughts weren't organized, this type of snag, what you start to see is that all of these other snags are connected not only in the sense that they're 
their injuries or their aftershocks of the initial earthquake, but that in some way they're similar or related. You know, like my scattered notes and my scattered thoughts manifested in my scattered room, my scattered coffee table, my desire for notebooks, and my need to bounce between books. They were connected, and I just wasn't seeing the connection. So I think it is possible to see those early signs of depression and anxiety and to do things to mitigate it, to stop the avalanche. You might not stop the feeling, but you can stop the thing that knocks you down and bowls you over. That you can go around, you can pick up those loose threads, and you can complete shit. And now because I have that complete, you know, my room will, will get cleaned. Phone calls will get replied to. Or phone calls will get made and emails will get replied to. But I also have neat little projects that I can do now. Things that make me feel good. Like going through Rome and taking all of the notes, not moving them to a city obsidian, throwing away the ones that are useless to me, and writing everything in the notebook to be discovered later. And it's fun for me. And because that's fun for me, and because it's a project, and because I feel like I'm accomplishing something, all of a sudden I feel so much better that not just resolving that unresolved thing gave me a, it gave me a little bit of reprieve, but then this other thing that's attached to that gives me a little bit more, and this one over here gives me a little more self-confidence, and this one over here just brings me some joy, and this one gives me something to do while I'm watching TV, on paper, like I did when I was a kid. And I think, may, I, don't, I don't like, maybe the reason I don't like normally talking about mental stuff, mental health, mental illness, mental handicaps, is not only because I don't have the right words for it, I don't, or I don't feel like there are right words for it, but because I don't like talking about things that I can't resolve. So maybe the reason that I was able to talk about this in this episode is because I've come to a sort of resolution. Resolution and solution are things that come up together. I didn't find a solution here. Or maybe, maybe, I've, maybe I have it backwards. I've found a solution, but I haven't found a resolution. You know, this is not going to end, but I've found something that works. I've found the wheelchair, the crutch, the medication, the thing that allows me to go about my daily life and to build a life with what I have to work with. The thing that allows me to step over the stone instead of stop and stare at it like a metal monolith in the Arizona desert. So I think uh, we're almost at an hour and a half here. I think that's enough for now. I think I've got out everything. I went through all my index cards. I got out all of the, the thoughts that I had inside. I expressed something. So I think we're good. If you want to uh, chat at me and tell me maybe how you go through this stuff, how you feel about this stuff, whether it's note-taking or mental health, you can find me on Twitter at the Real Chat Hall. Give me a follow, give me a tweet, say hello. If you want to support me, you can do one of the two ways in the notes below, in the description below. You can either give me a one-time donation via Ko-fi 
or you can become a patron. Or on, yes, you guessed it, Patreon. Two tiers over there. Basically the same thing, just depends on how much you want to give. It's a tough time of year for everyone. I don't I don't expect you to do it, but if you can, be awesome because it's rough over here too. I gotta pay for this tooth somehow. And I gotta pay off those debtors. Oh man, don't want to think about that right now. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>